Before we get started with the show today, I want to spend a minute saying thank you to a listener who sent us a donation on PayPal. Uh, If you want your own shout out on the Messy Studio Podcast, all you have to do is go to www.messystudiopodcast.com and click the donate button. You can set up a single time donation or a recurring monthly donation for literally any amount. So thank you so much to Patricia Ellie Frost. I hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, Patricia sent us $10 uh, by clicking the donate button. And that $10 is really going to help us continue to produce the show, pay for those recurring monthly costs, and pay for equipment costs. Uh, So thank you so much, Patricia, for your generous donation. We really appreciate your support. On with the show. Hello and welcome to the Messy Studio, New Mexico edition. My conversation today is with Jill Witten and Rob Proctor, and they operate a very highly regarded um, art conservation business in Houston, Texas. And they also happen to have a second home that's just a few doors down from where we live in New Mexico. And so they're now my friends, and sometimes when I'm lucky, they're my neighbors. Um, Individually and separately, they've worked in various capacities with a long list of art museums including J. Paul Getty Museum, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, uh, the Art Institute of Chicago, the St. Louis Art Museum, Museum of Fine Arts Houston, the Bavarian National Museum uh, in Munich, and, and more. And they also have worked with a lot of galleries and private collectors, and they teach workshops in the techniques that they um, are experts on around the world. They, they've treated the paintings of this huge list of artists, so I'm going to name probably not even a fraction, but they include um, Frederick Remington, Max Beckman, Joan Mitchell, Frida Kahlo, Hans Hoffman, George O'Keefe, um, Diego Rivera, Robert Rauschenberg, Cy Twombly, and what was the one you said to mention, Jill? Helen Frankenthaler. Yes, we can't leave out Helen. Um, so welcome, um, Rob and Jill. Thanks. Hello. Hi. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I have to say that's a pretty um, that's a pretty amazing list of accomplishments. <laughs> uh, pretty impressive, um, and I think most most of us as artists have a hard time imagining being up close and personal with these incredible paintings by very famous people. Um, and I wonder if that's what kind of drew you to this work, or was it a more technical or scientific interest or some combination? Well, for me, I wanted to be an artist my entire life, and I went to art school, and uh, I always made art. And I got out of art school, and I just kind of thought, holy cow, what happens now? Right. And um, and I actually worked in restaurants kind of a long time, and I he- finally learned about conservation, and it just seemed like the perfect mix of my interest in the material world, um, you know, being able to work with art, um, doing something that I- I'm good at kind of tedious things, Um you know, that take a lot of concentration. And it's just been a really great feel for me. I mean, I had to go through, you know, jump through some hoops to to get to be a conservator, but um, it's very satisfying work once you do that. Uh, and how many years do you have to study to do this? Well, you um, graduate schools are generally three years, but um, 
I came to it kind of late. So you have to have a certain uh, number of hours of studio art, art history, and chemistry um, to to and go chemistry to chemistry is the key yeah, to go to graduate school. So I had to. I had taken enough art history and um, studio art in college. So I just went back to school for five semesters of chemistry. All right. Yeah. And I guess the question was, how did we get into this business? Well, kind of like, um, you know, what I think for for artists, it's so incredible to imagine, you know, I don't know, touching these paintings, being in a room with them. And, you know, is that was that part of what drew you to it? Or was it more purely technical interest? Or what's your background? Well, um, that question we re- actually weaves directly into how I got into it. I mean, I would say like, Joel, when I was little, I, whenever anything broke in the house, I was ecstatic because I could take it apart and see what made it work. <laughs> and, um, and I think all my family always thought I was going to be a veterinarian because I loved animals too, as a observ- observant of nature, but I could never deal with the sadness of being a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And I worked, I've always loved art and I got an art history degree. And, um, worked at the New Orleans Museum of Art. And, um, they asked me to do, I do a lot of what I felt was imp- inappropriate things. Like, just, like, they had all their African art on shelves and they just sort of like push them around. And this was a long time ago and push them around. And that's like, mm-hmm. or they'd ask me to build them crates and I, didn't. I just knew how to, I was a woodworker, so I knew how to build stuff, but I had no idea about, you know, the care of art. And then I met some Italian conservators and I was like, oh my God, there are people that actually, you know, take care of art. And I was ecstatic to find it out. And then I went through a long process like Jill did uh, um, after uh, I had, I had basically the, the credits in art history and in fine arts, but I needed to learn uh, uh, chemistry and also uh a foreign language. So I did a lot of traveling and a lot of different internships and things like that. Wow. That, yeah, that's interesting how you, how you came at it from sort of the, you worked in a museum, but that wasn't what you were doing. You were doing building things or something. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always love the stories of how people end up where they are and the connections even from childhood, like you were saying, that somehow this this came together in, in a really amazing way. And then I suppose you started to um, gain experience. And I mean, how do you even get to the point where you're um, working with a major museum? Well, um, you ha- the best track these days, and when we got into the field, is to get a master's degree. Um in conservation. Yeah. And the, and the graduate programs require a certain number of internships. We do two summer internships, and then you do a third-year internship. And a lot of people do those internships in museums. And, you know, there's a big group of alumni and colleagues that um, we can draw on to, you know, help place us in these museums. And um, so, the, I mean, that gets, you know, my internship was at the Art Institute of Chicago. And yeah. there I was in a fabulous place. And I thought I wanted to um, major in modern art, and I got accepted to go to SFMOMA, but I had a, colleagues that said, you know, you really, it would be good to get um, more of a grounding in traditional art, too. And the conservator at the Art Institute, Frank Zuccari, is, you know, a genius at 
restoring old master paintings. So, and they have a great modern collection. So I got to do both. I got to learn both at the Art Institute, and and that's how I made my choice. And, and um, wound up in a great museum. <laughs> yes. So yeah, like Jill said, the, when you go to graduate school, one one of the few graduate schools in this country, they they help you find a very the, the, you know people actually want the students to come and mm-hmm. do the internships because they do good work and they're you know cheap labor and uh, they know all the latest they stuff. know all the latest yes. things right right yeah. but we all need to, you 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 need um, ex- actually some hours of experience before you get to graduate school that's one of the prerequisites and that's really the hardest to get in a lot of ways because um, uh, I was very fortunate and just got some really great ones. And, um, but people come, like people come, we'll, we'll, we'll work with us for a few months because we're private. It's a little bit, um, harder for us to, uh, to give the people the, the enough attention that they really can make something out of the time that they're spending with you. Um, it takes, it, it's, yeah, you have to take away from your normal work. Yeah, so you're not really in a position of tra- you Sometimes you train people, but not that's not what you do. Mm-hmm. The schools do that, or the museums do that, basically. Well, we've done quite a bit of training of of people that are now in wonderful museums. So yeah. um, we we have had a number of interns. Um, you don't learn everything that you need to know in graduate school, though, and so we do a lot of postgraduate fellowships. Oh, I see. Um, and that's another way you get experience in wonderful museums. I went to the National Gallery of Art and the J. Paul Getty Museum, you know, in postgraduate positions after the Art Institute. So, so do you do you remember the first time you worked on a painting of somebody that just kind of you were just they were a hero more or less? Well, actually, and it's still one of my favorite paintings that I ever worked on. And it was actually in graduate school, and it was a, um, I had worked on more famous paintings actually at that time, but it was a painting by Grandma Moses. And she had mixed uh, mica in with the, um, white paint to make the snow glitter. And it was just a, it was just a fabulous thing for me. It's like when you talk about getting personal with art, you really, that, that's like a thing, you know? Yeah. The most, my first just heart stopper was working on a Paul Clay at the Art Institute, Art Institute of Chicago. And we had a Paul Clay print in our house when I was little, and I always loved Paul Clay. And I think in our, in our professional life, um, when we got to work on the Frida Kahlo, it was just the most amazing experience to look at that painting under a microscope. Wow. And see how she achieved all these, you know, like there was a hummingbird that had iridescent feathers and it was just paint, but she could make it look iridescent. I mean, it just, it was so fun. We could hardly work on it. We just wow. wanted to look at it all day. <laughs> well, and so, you know, anyone that's looked at a self-portrait of Frida Kahlo, she's looking right back at you. Yeah. And when you're, you know, <laughs> handling her, it's really, it's really sort of intimate, uh, Direct connection to the yeah. artist. She's saying, "You better do you better do a good job on this." Right? <laughs> um, so, is this? I mean, it, at any point has it become sort of routine, or is it still every time? I mean, you encounter some new artist, it must be every time because everybody's different, right? Every artist is coming at it in a new way that must be kind of fascinating. 
Yeah, and it's not always the the famous paintings that blow your mind. You know, we've worked on some kind of minor surrealist paintings that were just so incredibly inventive and beautiful that, you know, it that that's the thrill, I think. And and a lot of our work is problem solving. And that's why we enjoy working together. I can't imagine being in private practice just as one person because it's so important to bounce ideas off and mm-hmm. you know come to solutions through a lot of different angles. Yeah, um, Jill and I both love folk art, and um, I think you know why painting painters like Paul Clay, Grandma Moses, and even um, uh, Frida Kahlo is because. The, there's something, you know, in, I don't know what, it's, it's I don't know where we're going. genuine, right? I mean, genuine. genuine and, the, and, and the way they approach, the, the, the way they approach the art is like, they're like, you know, like how Grandma Moses put that sparkle in her paint or, yeah. or, <laughs> or, you know, clay with his little, you know, indications around the perimeters are just very, and how, you know, how he would tack, his paintings to the uh, stretcher and things like that are, um, I mean, that's the thing that really delights conservators that a lot of people would find just sort of uh, boring is the backs of the canvases oh. and things like that. We're just, we become very uh, enthralled <laughs> with just like those things. Conservative, conservator <clears throat> geekdom, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. <laughs> um, so uh, what, what is like most of what you do? I mean, when you're, is there a category when, when you're working on a painting? Is it, is it, um, is it, I guess there's a difference between restoration and conservation, right? Are you trying to fix things that are starting to go wrong? Are you trying to preserve things? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, conservation is distinguished from restoration because of the aspect of care. Uh-huh. We do a lot of preventive things to help the art age better. And there are simple things, you know, uh, we vacuum the back of the canvas and we put a backing board, which is a buffer um, for both dust and um, uh, temperature and humidity exchanges that can make a canvas expand and contract and crack the paint. And, um, you know, we advise people, you know, the best places to hang their art in their home and things like that. But... um did I answer the question? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the question being, what what do we mainly spend our time on? Oh, yeah. Is that is, that's one of the wonderful things about the profession is that uh, you know some things are just simple and um, other things are really complex and you have to f- figure out a whole new way to do it. And uh, and uh, we've done that. Uh, can Can you give an example of something that was very challenging working with someone's work? Yeah, and the and the thing that I didn't say is what we do is um, our studio operates a lot like a European studio. There are people that do the structural work on the canvas, and then there are people that do more of the aesthetic work, the cleaning and the varnishing and the retouching. And that's a very European mm. um, technique, that division of labor. But that's we found that just works the best. Yeah. Rob is you know really a pioneer and highly regarded in our profession as a structural conservator and and I do more aesthetic work um what did you just ask us um can you can you think of a project oh. or a person an art 
a, maybe a body of work that you took on that needed a lot of work? Well, we can we can think of a lot of things we've worked on recently because um, there's been a lot of uh, pioneering work in our field in the last few years of how to clean water-soluble paintings. Oh. There are a lot of oil paintings that are underbound to the point that you can't clean them with water, and aqueous mixtures are things that we take grime off with. And so that's a real problem when you can't take the grime off, you know, on a, like an unvarnished painting. And um, there's just been a ton of work with silicone solvents and hmm. gels and, and things. And we've cleaned a few paintings recently oh. that, that couldn't have been cleaned in years past. Yeah, recent, recently, we just had a, um, a painting by Alex Katz. There was an early painting of his, and um, it was really dirty. And we did not analyze the paint, so I'm not exactly sure what the paint was. I, my own feeling is that it was probably um, originally a water-soluble paint, like gouache or uh, or even casein, but it could have just been very lean um, uh, uh, oil paint. But uh, the pigment was basically you could almost almost like a pastel you could almost wipe it off with your fingers wow. but it was very soiled too so the, that was a, how do you get that soil off of something that can't that's so delicate that's so yeah, delicate yeah. and um there has been some recent um innovations in this and uh we have a new employee who uh had some experience with what we did was we made an agar gel and agar is a uh, used in uh, in a lot of things, a lot of foods is a thickener, um, and it, you can make a. Or it's also used um, to uh, grow uh, um, in in petri dishes. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. And it's like it looks like Jello or something like that. And you, we would take a piece of mylar and trace out the shapes on the painting, and then create a piece of stiff gel that shape. And set that on the surface of the painting with a little bit of weight. So there's no mechanical action that could move the oh. pigment away and it would sequester the um, dirt there's into just the, enough moisture in the gel that it, it draws the dirt up. It's incredible. That's amazing. You put a little weight on it or well, quite a bit of weight on it and it sort of pushes the water out. Then you oh. take the weight off and it allows the, <laughs> and so it's, it's a simple technique, but it works. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you and I were on a walk once, Jill, and we were talking about all this stuff. And you mentioned um, working on um, some Joan Mitchell paintings. And I had to ask you, what are some common things that oil painters do, if I'm getting this right, that could lead to some problems? And you mentioned using a lot of really lean paint in initial layers and then going over it with heavier paint. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what was involved there. Well, for starters, I want to say that conservators see their role um, as as taking care of the art that an artist creates. And we don't like to tell artists how to make art unless we get a direct question. But, um, I mean, everybody knows the, the fat over lean rule and that you, you know, if you put lean paint over fat paint, meaning more oil rich, it doesn't age well. We see a lot of flaking when, when artists have put down an oil-rich layer and then put a, you know, a leaner underbound layer on top. They tend to flake apart over time. Mm -hmm. um, with really thick impasto paintings, like you see with Joan Mitchell, sometimes, I, I don't know if people know this, but um, the way artist paints are made, not every um, color has the same amount of binder. 
the 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 paint maker will put the optimum amount of binder with each pigment to make it have the best optical and working properties. So there's some colors that are just underbound. Mm-hmm. And um, if the paint is really thick, um, it can crack over time. And and lose saturation, it can look chalky. You know, oil paintings, even, um, even, you know, modern ones, what we call modern things made, you know, from the 20s or teens up, um, the paint can change a lot as it dries and ages. And we try to go with the artist's intent. We try to, you know, put ourselves in the artist's mind, look at the best preserved examples that hmm. that exist in the world. And um, we don't try to make things look new. We try to make them look like a well-preserved painting from the period that they're from. Mm-hmm. And with Joan Mitchell, um, sometimes the paint is very cracked and um, the paintings are really important and tend to travel. And we'll, you know, delicately put adhesive in those cracks with a little tiny brush. And then we do other things that Rob's going to talk about to, um, for big paintings that travel, important big paintings. Well, first thing, you know, just try to ima- imagine a large painting like a Joan Mitchell, six by six feet or even bigger. Um, you try to stretch a canvas side tight. You, you, you've put some, you've already put stresses in the necessary to hold the canvas. And then when it goes, if it goes, travels and changes both physically, it can sort of flap around mm-hmm. a little bit or, um, and, or environmentally, it can be very, there's, that's a lot of surface to react. And so one thing we, we do, um, is, well, one thing we do with these paintings that are traveling right now is we take a picture of the painting in the dark with bright lights behind the painting so we can see all the cracks oh, in the paint. It's called transmitted light. It's called transmitted light. And when the paintings come back, we will do a, a, a replicate the uh, light setup and we can see if any of those cracks have propagated. And so what we do to keep the painting from cracking from, uh, from vibrations is we often, um, fill the, uh, back of the stretcher with polyester or, um, where the crossbars are, you take a very thin piece of polyester and wrap it around the crossbar. So if the, if the canvas wants to vibrate at all, it can't hit the hard stretcher. It, it's dampened by the, uh, polyester. We, we, we make various kinds of almost like pillows, inserts that can fit in the stretcher openings on the back uh-huh. that are made of different materials um, that sometimes have foam. And, and you know, if the painting then flaps, it'll touch something soft. It won't touch the stretcher, which will make a crack eventually, you know, stretcher bar cracks. or mm-hmm. You've probably seen those on old paintings. Hmm. Yeah, and something, I guess I was getting a little bit of the sense from what you were saying that this is not... Um, what you do requires aesthetic judgment as well as the the chemical knowledge or whatever, because you were saying, you know, you try to understand what the artist meant or wanted, even if there's been changes or something by looking at other work and everything. So it's, it's an interesting balance of, I would think, some subjective decision-making along with the, the hard knowledge. And it, it sounds like a pretty interesting balancing act uh, because you have to kind of get inside the mind of the artist then, right? And there's been a lot of um, what we call technical art history um, that's been going on, 
you know, it's a really important thing in our field now. And that helps us understand uh, the materials that our artists use, the way they put the paint on in layers. And, um, you know, we try to understand why is this painting flaking or, you know, what is this water soluble layer that's different from everything else and and there's a lot of technical research that's been going on we we work with conservation scientists and it's very important that conservators and scientists publish and and our field is i think pretty good about that um because we're such a small profession about publishing this technical work that really helps us and informs our work but on on a different level say you're you're uh, cleaning an old portrait, a very old portrait that has cracks and things like that. And they're, when paintings age, the darks get darker and the lights will get darker too, but not to the degree, degree the darks get. Hmm. So, um, and the lights are, the whites are usually easier to clean. And so there's a temptation, and we see it a lot with old paintings that have been cleaned in the past, just to clean the whites because they brighten up very good. And, uh, or, you know, the face and leave everything dark. And then, um, you've lost a real balance in the art. And, um, and it's like, it's what I, what I call like, sometimes you see that little old lady that has a very wrinkly face, but just dyed her hair black and it just doesn't. <laughs> Too much contrast. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't contrast, but also just, you know, just let the thing be. Sometimes if you just let it be old, there's a, there's something oh, more, more, yeah. lot more, you know, uh, it's, it's easier to enjoy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's part of the history of the painting. Uh-huh. I mean, too, especially in older work. I mean, yeah, you don't want to look at a Rembrandt and think it was painted yesterday. I mean, it has that beautiful aging. Even the cracking sometimes is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cracking can be beautiful, but, um, but you, tr- not so much. Yeah. Well, you see too much of it. Probably. We see too much of it. Um, yeah. But we teach a lot about varnishes. That's one of the things that oh, we talk yeah. about. New resins yeah. that have been introduced uh, to our profession. Um, and what happens over time a lot with paintings, what you may have noticed if you varnish your paintings, that they look really beautiful. And we kind of liken it to when you find a rock on the beach and mm-hmm. the, it has stripes and colors and then it dries out and it doesn't look so pretty. A varnish is like the wet rock. Yeah, And so over time, a lot of paintings get re-varnished without getting cleaned. And so when we take the varnish off a painting, a lot of times there's grime in between varnish layers. So we use different materials. We'll take off one varnish layer, then we'll take off a grime layer with something different, and then we'll take off another varnish layer. And you have a, sometimes you have a choice of when to stop. Uh-huh. And, you know, Rob yeah. has done some pretty dramatic treatments where he left the final really old varnish layer because the painting looked gorgeous with yeah. that original layer on it. But all the, you know, things that have been put on in the ensuing years, he was able to remove. And and then, you know, with at least with traditional oil painting, I know the, the general advice is to wait maybe a year to varnish it because it has to be thoroughly dry. And there must be... Well, I've when I was using more traditional oil painting, I thought, how, how am I going to get this painting back in a year to varnish it? I mean, it seemed like one of those things that made sense, but yet most people wouldn't have their work a year from then. And then does the varnishing fall to the collector or what? I mean, it seemed like a kind of a difficult problem. And I know there are temporary varnishes, but um, now that I use cold wax medium, I don't worry about that. But <laughs> <Lucky>. <laughs> I, I know that that is a problem. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, artists often ask us, you know, do I need to varnish my my work? And the answer is no. If you can achieve what you want to with paint and coal wax or whatever you're using, you do not have to um, varnish your paintings. Varnish changes over time, and it's kind of what we call a sacrificial layer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, if you use proper materials... And you, you wait a year. And you wait a year before you put it on, you should eventually be able to take that varnish off if you use good artist materials. So so the varnish really is just a shiny layer, you're saying? It doesn't have another function? <laughs> it doesn't really have another function. Wow. Um, I- most, I mean... On a microscopic level, it'll keep dirt off the paint, but um, varnish is, you know, it doesn't keep light off of it, doesn't keep it from fading. Uh-huh. Um, it doesn't keep, um, it, it doesn't prevent oxidation of of the layers, which is aging, and yeah, it's, it's mostly aesthetic. Huh. It's mostly I aesthetic. never knew that. There, you know, um, okay, so... Jill mentioned that varnish is a sacrificial layer, and what she meant by that was, uh, in the past, the, the restorers or conservators didn't have the technology we have today to clean, like we were talking about, the unvarnished paintings as easily. So instead of just taking the dirt off the painting, you would just take the varnish and the dirt off would would come off with it. So uh-huh. in that sense, it was uh, um, uh, protected the paint from the dirt. But now we know that uh, we have enough technology that when the painting needs to be cleaned, it normally can be cleaned with, by just taking the dirt off. You don't have to take the varnish off too. Or if there is no oh, varnish, yeah. you can take the dirt off. And what I meant by sacrificial layer is that um, historically, artists knew that varnish changes. Damar, mastic, they were going to turn yellow or brown yeah. over time. And they put this material on knowing that it would be taken off someday. So it was a process of occasionally taking it off and reapplying it. Oh. It takes a long time for it to undergo those changes unless it's in a really bad environment. Yeah. But, you know, historically, other bad things happen. You know, there's coal in the air and the windows are open yes. and the painting <laughs> turns black. And um, so we, we avoid a lot of those things now by you know, having climatized museums with windows and good lighting. And right. um, and we have a lot better artist materials. They're more know, stable. And we've been talking a lot about oil painting, but just touching a little bit on acrylic, um, how does that hold up over time in comparison to oil paint? Well, acrylics are really complicated materials. There's many, many, many ingredients, surfactants and deflocculants and just all, a lot of ingredients. And um, one thing that can harm an acrylic painting is if it gets cold and is and is go, gets a blow or any kind of vibration, uh-huh. acrylics don't respond well to cold. They the basically paint, freeze. The paint can crack, yeah. Oh. Um, but they're just different. They're kind of softer. The, the, they don't dry as hard as oil. But if they're well cared for and they don't get really dirty um, – Acrylics age really well. I mean, yeah. they're more flexible. How about the do the colors themselves change about the same over time with with light and atmosphere, or are they more light fast in general? Depends no, on the quality of the of the no, pigments. But but you know, a, a 
a, a fugitive acrylic will fade at the same rate, basically, as a fugitive uh, yeah, uh, so. oil. Yeah. Oil is probably a little bit more um, uh, 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 robust. Light fast, yeah. Okay. And, and but, the only way to really keep, um, if you have a painting that you really, it has fugitive colors in it, and they're not very light fast. The only thing to do with that really is not hang it in, in a lot of light, right? right? I mean, or put it put it behind UV glass. Is that the same? UV glass, UV glass helps, but all light damages uh, are that particularly ones that with fugitive colors. The UV light has the most energy, so and it's like on a logarithmic scale. So, like the UV light will maybe, five, you know, five. Five hours in UV light will be equivalent to t ten hours of oh. blue light, with twenty hours of red yeah. light. But it all affects. But it's all it all, it all affects. affects. Yeah. So, uh, but the UV, uh, the yeah, the putting it behind uh, filtered glass is always a. And what are what are some what are some of the most fugitive colors that you would you would you point to and say, watch out for these if you're a painter. Well, most of the we wouldn't say that. Well, okay, that's right. You said you don't give advice. <laughs> and we okay. couldn't tell somebody. Let's, like, let's like, just back up and say what are the most fugitive colors. <laughs> well, you can see all the any color any paints that are ASTM. I think have yes. uh, have a a, a, a rating oh, of a the, symbol or something. Yeah, yeah. stars and of some sort. I think a lot of artists really really pay very little attention to that. You know, well, and, and as you're saying, they they shouldn't worry too much about it. No, just you shouldn't. I mean, if you want to use acrylics because you don't want to be around solvents, I mean, use acrylics. I mean, yeah. there's people choose their materials, I think, for Absolutely. for a reason. Um, you know, 19th century paintings used a lot of lake pigments, red lake pigments. Uh oh, it's oh. late. And um, those fade. And we've seen, you know, the, you can have a painting of a woman in a pink dress and her dress isn't pink anymore. And yeah. Van Gogh used colors that faded really dramatically but, and so mo the more modern paints are more light fast in general uh no, no. <laughs> the, up until up until the like the 20th century yeah because people really cared about that artists really were they made paid so much attention and then really like the uh um the discovery of new things like uh, Coach Neal, you might have yes. seen some. There's been a lot of uh, made out of Beatles, <laughs> yeah, and things like that. That well, that Coach Neal was new? better. Well, it was better than well, yeah, it came from the New World. So you know, 17th, 18th century. That's new. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, when they started making all these dazzling synthetic pigments, I mean, they're not all light fast, but they're they're dazzling. They're amazing yeah. colors, and yes. artists used them and experimented with them, and yes. still do. Well, we, we definitely have a lot more options right there. <laughs> but for instance, all the Dayglo paints, those are very fugitive. Are they? Oh, I think all of them. I'm not, I'm not, it's yeah. not my expertise, but yeah. yeah. So, uh, and also they depend on UV to get the, to, to, to get that glow. Oh. That's how they glow. Welcome UV. <laughs> so, so you're faced with if you want to see them, you know, look like they want to look, you have to, um, expose them to things that are dangerous to them. <laughs> An interesting paradox. Yeah. So we're about to wrap up here, but I, I have to ask the question I know burns in the minds of many oil painters. Um, 
and uh, you did agree to answer this one. Is it okay to use um, good quality professional acrylic gesso underneath your oil painting as a primer layer? Yes. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I know so many people worry about that. And I've never really seen a definitive answer. Some people are very traditional and they say not to do that. And yet other people say this has held up for decades. And so, yeah, good. Well, we've heard it from the experts here. So thank you. Um, so I want to thank you both for, for joining me. This has really been interesting. Well, thank you. Thank it God. has been it fun. It was. It went fast. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, that about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. You can find The Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. Please make sure to check out squeegeepress.com, as well as www.rebeccacroll.com, and sign up for the email list to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a review. Remember to share the show with friends and family and anyone who you think will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. In the meantime, embrace your creative space, messy or otherwise. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>